Hello, welcome to We Don't Talk About the Weather. Political discussion from the outside may look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam and this is Hugh. Hello. And we're here to talk news and politics. Yeah, first proper one of the year? Yeah. I think so, it's nearly March, so that, <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. That normally what, that's normally what happens, like doing the year awards thing burns us out, something chronic, and then there's always shit. There's always stuff that happens at the start of the year that we always end up being really busy. Like, as, yeah. like even now I've been busy. <laughs> Which is, like, why? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I haven't had, like, I've had a few ideas of kind of things we could do. But also, like, I would look at the week's news and it would be like, oh, okay. There was definitely, before the most recent COVID announcements, I didn't feel like there was really any, any, like, movement at all. Everything really slowed slowed to a crawl. When they they announced that there wasn't going to be, they were going to announce, like, the roadmap to freedom the long march mm. um when they decided they were going to announce that like when did they announced it on monday and when they announced it, it wasn't going to be until then everything was just like oh, okay so we're all on hold now it's pretty incredible that we've kind of been in a full lockdown since like no well since uh, it was december wasn't it because mm. it was the christmas announcement yeah that when when tier four metamorphosized into that and we've just been like that ever since mm-hmm. <laughs> wait uh, okay all right yeah. that's it then yeah but you know we've got i think it's weird because like i'm hoping i'm quite hopeful about all of this everything is looking kind of good um there's stuff that does worry me but because of the absolute no power we have the only option is to just go well fingers crossed (laughs) yeah yeah, fingers crossed. Pints by Easter. This was the con- this was the consequence of putting this particular Tory government in power yeah. that, and with such a large majority that, yeah, no, there is literally nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do for the next four years. That's no. it. Like no. everything, everything is over. And I think for a lot of people, that was seemed seemed to be what they wanted. Yeah, the Matt Hancock thing is like properly hammered at home. That oh yeah, there's nothing you can do. Like Julian Morgan can take the government to court. They'll spend huge amounts of money trying to defend a lie. He'll be caught out having been unlawful, giving money to his to his buddy that owns the pub. Um and just nothing. Just nothing. He'll just go on the news and lie some more, say and and say things like, We never ran out of PPE, which is not true. I remember the footage of hospitals. Excuse me, Nad was it Nadia Whittam who got um sacked yeah. from her her job for yeah. saying that they didn't have enough PPE? Yep. That, nothing have happened happened about that either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, protect the NHS, all that. It's fine. It's li- it's is a very she, weird thing living first, in it. Is she the only MP that's lit, literally suffer like lost a job because of actual principles? Do you know what I mean? Like actually standing up and say announcing something and then being punished, like literally Excuse being me. a whistleblower and being punished. Excuse me. Oh, I was, I was going to say, if you're talking about stepping down to principle, <laughs> one Prissy Patel who quit being an advisor to an arms company literally two weeks after she became Home Secretary. <laughs> if that isn't principle, I don't know what is. Um, yeah, it's so properly feel like we have no power, so might as well just hope for the best and. Look at like did oh did you see the announcement today that um Reading and Leeds Festival are going ahead? Which, oh, be still my beating heart. Which, <laughs> well, no, it's just the idea. Like, okay, when lockdown is, what's to say, like June is when it's supposed to be like pretty much done. Yeah, 
Um, you know, like as soon as I see my friends, I am going to be hugging people and things like that. But then there's like, there's hugging people and then there's how disgusting I remember Reading and Leeds Festival to be. Like, Reading was so <laughs> I thought he was going to say, there's hugging people and then there's getting right up, <laughs> right up in people. Yes. Well, Which is one of your favourite activities. <laughs> it and is. You haven't been able to do it since coronavirus. No, no. Um, what's it called? That um, Japanese prank thing where they do the fingers and shove each other's asses. It's not Fondoshi, is it? No, that's the name of the underwear. Oh, uh, okay. So actually, if you were wearing Fondoshi, it would be a lot easier. Yeah, but I can't remember what it's called. But anyway, that, yeah, that's like my favourite thing. But um, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, just hoping. But then, you know, there's there's that. And then there's, what possible recourse could we have to a horrible Conservative government that we, that you know, it's not what any of us wanted. So let's look to the Labour Party, the Party of Organised Labour, the Social Democratic Party of Britain. Um, and, and yeah. More like the belaboured party, am I right? Oh, well done. <laughs> um, and yeah, that just depresses me every day. It's it's kind of it's kind of mad, really, like the mm. Keir Starmer thing, because like he is getting a lot of attention, but it doesn't it doesn't work. No, like whatever way it's intended to work, bad or good, mm. I don't think it's working. No, like well, no, I read that um, it's not in the polls, but then the polls are weird, and I think the polls it's it's far honest, away from election. I don't. Well, the whole thing is everything is weird at the moment because of Rona, so I don't think you can really trust polls until for a while but the fact that <laughs> we've got a government that's literally killing hundred that killed over a hundred thousand people um, again <laughs> yeah and yeah and for a separate discreetly particular reason yeah <laughs> um and they're just generally sort of middling muddling about <laughs> like, look i don't i don't know if this is some grand like scheme to kind of because like look he's staring down the barrel of like four years mm-hmm it's uh, I mean getting into getting on to three years now um so it's kind of impossible to actually say what is supposed to happen hmm. um but there's there's this thing that I keep getting the I keep getting the feeling of Kistama that like the stuff he's saying isn't impacting anybody at hmm. all and I don't particularly know I mean or care but I don't particularly know why. You know, like I've, I've, I've seen so many people like respond personally and directly to something like Starmer has said. Mm. So, like, if he's if he's talking about like opening schools again, yeah, or um, what his tax policy is, mm. there will be an incredible amount of like uh, discussion around it without any real forensic examination of what he means because it doesn't mean anything. He's mm. an opposition party leader one year in. Um, but the tone of voice he gets, it's as if he's the real Prime Minister. It is literally as if he's um, he's in a... Co- it, like, with no, no like, Starmer as a Tory stuff, but it sounds like he's in a coalition and he's a junior minister in the coalition. Oh, yeah. That's like, like, it sounds like he's a, he's a Dominic Rab type, type character because Boris doesn't get that. Boris is getting, frankly, I think we've said it before, he's getting the royal treatment. Mm. He's, getting, he's getting the same treatment as if he's, like, an oddity of British cultural life. And Starmer is the real politician. Have well, you seen the um, the defence of um, Boris getting abuse online? Did you see that? No. 
I didn't see oh that. yeah, there were some people defending him, and he was complaining about the abuse he gets online. And there were some people on Twitter defending him, posting pictures of him looking sad. People talking about the abuse he gets online, defending him. These are like I'm just going off their bios because I remember it from when we did our Megxit stuff and our Megxit <laughs> Twitter. Their bios look very similar to the kind of people who are screaming at Meghan Markle all the time. Um. But yeah, they, they are because it's 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 an odd it's an odd thing because like I was I was thinking um, we'll talk about it in a minute but I had reason to see various images and videos of Tony Blair this week hmm. and thinking that like there hasn't been a similar like PM to him like even Boris is not the same level of like like personality as the driving force behind the things that he's saying. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Boris is not the same as that. Even though everyone said he would be like that, that's not that's not what it is. Instead, he has this kind of cultural and institutional power. I mean, obviously buoyed up by the actual effects of never having having like three quarters of the press constantly report what you say your opinion as a press release yeah. as fact. But there is this kind of feeling like the government is so entrenched and so isolated and on high that it might as well just be... It's just the state. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, it, it's just the thing that you can't get rid of now. It's just embedded. Hmm. That's everything that it is. And so all of all of these attacks on it just seem to, like, go away. And, yeah, Keir Starmer, like, is not a, is not a good counter to that because... Yeah. Well, for many reasons, he's not. He wouldn't be a good opposition leader, even if this was Cameron and this was a mm. quote-unquote normal government. If it was a a a like spin-led Blairite type administration, mm. like Keir wouldn't be doing good at it. He had that big like landmark, supposedly landmark speech that he gave the other the other day, oh, like a week the, ago, I think. The yet another relaunch, because you know when things yeah. have multiple relaunches, that's always a good sign. You know, it like means when, they're being. When Anthem 2.0 comes out, that proves that Anthem has always been good. <laughs> and that's that's. The I thought you, I thought you were going to go with. I thought you were going to go with Zack Snyder's uh, Keir Starmer. <laughs> it's it's edgier this time. We're going to dress him up as Jesus. <laughs> um, he's going to be allowed. He's going to be allowed to say the f word. I, that's coming. That's coming because oh. they couldn't do it with Ed Miliband. But Keir Starmer, if he wants to prove he's tough, he's not going to go. Hell yes, I am tough enough. He's going to use a swear. He's going to use a curse Mark word. it down. Yes. <laughs> well, um, I'm starting to think that Boris is never going to go. I think that prediction might be off. I think, um, depending on how the he's, pulse... ha- he's had it too easy. Yeah, I think he's, he's he has had it too being easy. A king now. <laughs> yeah, because he he isn't he isn't a politician. He's a cultural figure. He's mm. like in Civilization. Yeah, where you would just have suddenly have a cultural figure appear and you'd use them for something, <laughs> you know, to up your culture or build, you know, a special wonder or something. And that's what he's being used for. He's being used to build, build the Brexit wonder. Yeah. Um. There's. But um, yeah, like the the Rishi. Did you see the um? It was a thing today. I saw clips of it. Um. So. The Labour Party are not in favour of raising taxes now. Um, it wasn't that, but again, that but, was which that was them, already said, sort of. But like Rishi yeah, Sunak, thing, is, Rishi Sunak's going to be raising taxes, and yeah. when asked if they were going to raise taxes, there's like no. Um, it was like some junior junior minister on something saying no, um, but then at PMQ today, it was just oh PMQs is unbearable. But it's getting worse. But look, it's like Boris, it's like now he's completely over Rona. 
He's fully bluff, boisterous, doesn't answer a single question. Like, Keir Starmer says, you know, you shouldn't raise taxes now because that will that will stutter the economy, blah, blah, blah. And then um, Boris's response was, last year you stood on a manifesto that was going to raise taxes higher than any, gov- any manifesto ever before. And then it, that's it. Yeah, that's it. It's done. Yeah. Every single time. And, like, that's the key to this... To this whole thing, like I've stopped seeing it as a Keir Starmer problem and I've started seeing it as a Labour problem because this is exactly the same model as we had under Corbynism. You say something. I, I read that speech that he gave, the, mm-hmm. the relaunch of the relaunch of the relaunch and talking mm-hmm. about values. That was another thing that's come out over the past month or so that you tell people that we need to have like, I don't know, what, what did they call it? Um it was like social communitarian values based evidence Ooh. or something, some shit term like that. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't work if you think that you're hoodwinking everybody by changing and then telling them that you're doing it yeah. anyway. Um, so this other relaunch, like there was, um, there was like, there's almost nothing to agree or disagree with. Right. There was, there was a lot of stuff like, you know, I, I don't agree with the Tory government. I would I wouldn't trust them to do anything. You're not going to build the high wage, high standards Britain that we so desperately need. That's an actual quote. Um and it's like yeah, but also you're not promising that. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's like they took the shell mm. of like the necessary shell that you that like say Corbyn had to build his policies around. You have to build them into a narrative and it was either less or more successful depending on your on your point of view. But it's like they took the shell of that hmm. and said, Oh, here we go. We're going to get the pap, the flag voters and we're going to get the left in one fell swoop just by saying words. And it's hmm. like, this is actually kind of the same problem that Corbyn had. I think that we mentioned when the, the election happened that like, if you've spent so long talking about how people desperately need a labor government and you can't actually sort your own party, you can't actually sort your own message. Like, no one's going to believe you. There's no impact there because mm. genuinely no one believes that you're going to be able to do these things. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do, like, do we expect this Labour government to take on powerful interests? Mm-hmm. Do we? No. No, not really. Do we expect them to look out for you? Well, sometimes, if, mm. you're, if you're worth it. Mm. That's the union thing as well. Like, even if you're not in a union, mm. if, they're, if they're like hedging their bets when it talks about supporting unions that's not just a union issue that's a psychology issue that you're saying if it comes down to it this labor party which for british cultural reasons is never identified fully as the state the state thing that protects you Hmm. if they're not going to do that then they have to have a a real mission to try and protect me oh but they're not going to do that either yeah because they didn't protect their own yeah and because you're never, ever going to sever that link. They could stop taking money from the unions tomorrow and there would still be uh, the dead hand of union fat cats behind Labour. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It yeah, absolutely doesn't matter. None of it matters. I don't... And this isn't, like, me getting, like, really critical of Keir because I actually genuinely think it's a Labour problem. It is a problem with the institution of the Labour Party. It is a problem with its positioning in British politics and oh, British discourse. Yeah. What are the things I'd say And that the there's so much power against it. One of, the, one of the things I'd say the problem with him is is that he is literally an empty suit. I, he doesn't look he, happy. He does not have the qualities to overcome the inbuilt um, 
bias is a word, uh, the inbuilt tilting against anything that isn't the Conservative Party. Mm. He does not have it. Corbyn had it, but it, it just wasn't enough. Mm. He does not have it. He does not have anything mm. to him. Okay, um, for the kind of main thing we wanted to talk about this week, um, Adam Curtis has a new series out on BBC iPlayer. It's called uh, Can't Get You Out of My Head. Yep. Um, it's really interesting. Like, this has come at a time when I think a lot of people identify Adam Curtis as one of the foundation stones of that particular type of left-wing person or movement. You know, they were... It was the student... Like, they came up in the student protests, mm. usually like a hundred different tropes being attached to them, like the Verso books, the Red Star pin badge, opinions on Piketty, Lacan, Mark Fisher, those kind of things. So yeah. Adam Curtis is well, definitely one of the Having one of the stones. for like the image on the iPlayer website for the first episode being like a shot of um, Death Note really put an end to that idea. <laughs> so it's nothing like it. Um <laughs> And it obviously it's 2021. Uh, it seems that that particular thrust of left wing stuff seems to have reached its apex, or at least you know metamorphed into something different. Hmm. Um, so the release of this series seemed to like there was a lot of aggro around this coming out. There was a lot of kind of prejudging of it. Yeah, so, some on the left um, basically saying the same thing that they've been saying about um, Bitter Lake and hypernormalization, which was two previous um, series. Yeah, um, which is generally like it's it's shallow. It's um, it's not materialist. It's not really left wing thought because it deals with idealism. It deals with ideas rather mm. than material material stuff. What was um, really interesting this time is that the real anger came from the the agrocentrists. Mm. So you're talking about the Nashajew people, the the Assadist, the, the Assad people, the Russia people. Yeah. Um, who really suddenly seemed to discover that Adam Curtis parodic style that was popular about four years ago. Mm. Um, it had something of like the old hippie bashing about it because I think they obviously identify a Corbinite or a Corbinista as a particular type. Mm. And they're very keen to take what they think the ideas of Corbinism were and, yeah, do that classic, like, hippie bashing about it. You know, say it's too soft for this world or it's yeah. too uh, unrealistic or, mm. or outdated or whatever. Mm. Um, and, you know, like, there's a there's a lot to criticise about. I, I, I didn't like the last two... I liked Bitter Lake okay, but I, I didn't really like Hypernormalization. No, like Hypernormalization was, kind of, was the one that was like really experimental, wasn't it? That it act. was much more experimental, but it was it, it overreached and was bloated in a way that um, he never managed to get hold of what he was actually trying to talk about, I feel like, in Hypernormalization. He was expanding... Okay. All this doing the diamond technique of expanding out the topic, and he could never, he never quite managed to draw it back in mm -hmm. to come to a, a decent conclusion. Um, 
I actually think this latest series is really good. I think it's one of his best stuff. I've watched the the whole thing now, including okay. that's seen, about eight hours. Oh, Jesus, I've seen the first three episodes. I'm very yeah, much the, enjoying it. The second episode it, I thought was amazing. It's genuinely really good. It doesn't seem to be focused on um, a single topic at the moment. Uh, it, it seems to be mostly about things like memory mm. and how you construct, how society constructs stories to. Um, remember inconvenient periods and and how the control over these kind of stories prevents us from really connecting with what actually happened in the past mm. and therefore that prevents us imagining a future i um, um i really picked up on like because it's been a while since i properly sat down and enjoyed adam yeah. curtis and i'd completely forgotten that like in that proper in a D way the dual class psychiatrist and advertising exec is literally yeah. the villain of every single one of his fucking things. <laughs> and he's he's not wrong. <laughs> I mean, the usual tropes of Adam Curtis stuff is that it very much focuses... He gets accused of, like, um, saying, oh, yeah, you know, the status quo is bad and wrong, but also attempts to change it a bad and wrong as well because they forget the individual. In fact, there was a number of things um, I was looking into uh, that suggest that he's, like... He's slightly closer with the kind of spiked network... And a viewpoint. The I, I need to look into it more, but the main piece of evidence seems to be that one of the directors for I think it was the trap hmm. was a spiked a spiked guy. That was a long time ago. Uh, Bill Bill Derodi, who was one of the founders of the Manifesto Club. Hmm. That was the the, the organisation that says smoking in pubs and all yeah. that kind of shit. Um, I I don't, I don't see it. I've, I think I've got a pretty good um ear for that kind of thing and although he does go into kind of fear confidence individualism and contrasting that with moral panics and things mm. like that he, there's something off about the tone that means i don't think he, i don't think that goes into too deep mm. you know but i mean he he gets criticized for kind of privileging individualism over collective action yeah but um i think quite a lot of the time like he's not He's not really promoting any particular kind of liberalism, uh, any kind, particular kind of individualism. He's like, he's describing critically an individualism that is like lonely, alienated, and not by the actual choice of that individualism. You know, he's, it's what often features in his shows are like an oppressive individualism mm. because it doesn't have a political basis because it's only got a consumerist outlet or it's fixed in time by a particular reading of history. You know, it's not, um, self-actualizing, which he actually, he actually does mention in this, in this show, mm. um, the idea of a self-actualizing identity. Um, and you know he actually mentions in this in this the self actualization in this show and says that you know the individual without having the political rights to be able to be realized within a society like the individuality that needs care and bonds and support from a society to be realized all you have is neoliberal individualism all you have is like that choice of narrow preselected outcomes mm. you know and also increasingly an individualism that you have to actually go out into the market and sell you have to put your individualism at the mercy of the market. Yeah. Um, I've also seen like various critiques of Adam Curtis saying that he's not like he's not left wing enough. He's not Marxist enough. He's not materialist enough. Well, he's not a Marxist, is he? 
Um, he's never actually said he doesn't really talk about his politics, despite appearing on. Um, I mean, he was on Chapo, wasn't he? He was on Chapo Trap House. Was he? I thought um, I always yeah, thought he was like, he I thought he was like a libertarian socialist in that way that left wing yeah, men of that could, age tend to be. He could be. He's never really delineated it, and obviously he he is talking about things. But like you know, he's talking about the relationship between. If he is talking about the individual, he's not talking about how they should conduct themselves or how society should be made up. Mm. But he is talking about the base assumption of the relationship between the society and the individual. Yeah. Which, like, I mean, in a legal sense, that's just the constitution. That's politics. Mm. Um, and actually, I think this is probably one of his most left-wing... One of the most left-wing series he's ever done. Because unlike, say, The Trap or The Century of the Self, um, even the Mayfair set doesn't really expects the outrage to come from you hmm. at, at him describing the things that he's describing, that they are immoral and repugnant. Yeah. But that is also an assumption based on, on you. This series, Can't Get You Out of My Head, is proper Marxist. The show is literally all about what happens when idealism runs up against materialism. Hmm. Like, when the market comes to dominate everything and it oppresses the individual, what happens to that individual? Mm. He specifically um, talks about the power um, invested in trade unions and in collective strike action. Yeah, there was you know, those nice was it interviews with, um, or was like bits of footage of the lawyer for Appalachian coal miners? Yeah. Yeah, he specifically <laughs> talks about um, how coal, once coal gave way to oil, mm. um, Workers could be controlled by authoritarian governments and the oil industry, which is obviously, it has pipelines and filtering plants and delivery networks. Um, it's a very scattered, diffuse network. So unlike coal, which is all centered around one place and then there's one train line that goes out to uh, deliver it where it needs to go, the oil industry is very scattered. So you can't have strike action. You can't mm. have collective action. Um, Except by the people I also, who own it. Except by the people who own it, exactly, like by OPEC. Um, but also, I think it, it kind of misses the point of saying he doesn't examine materialism because he misses an important point that ideas are actually material as well. Hmm. Ideas that about the relationship, like ideology that springs from capitalist material relations are part of those material relations. They are important to examine as a Marxist, as a materialist, or something like that. When he talks about power... He's talking about the expression of material relations. It's not an abstract thing. It's not an opinion about whether someone has power. It's not whether you think they have power. It's whether they have power. Mm. You know. And I mean, you can go further than this. You can look at kind of the nature of his work and, and look across all of his series and examine what he thinks are fluid. Things like human nature, um, commerce, is fluid mm. scientific like science the nature of the, and philosophy of science is fluid uh technology um the advance of technology all of these things are fluid and change in response to human political action and then you look at what are his mainstays of things that he actually said he actually either like kind of by omission says doesn't change mm. so like money power uh the the financial sector mm. you know the amount of times he says, and then the banks, <laughs> um, like capitalism, essentially. Yeah. These are the things that doesn't don't change direction and are not subject to anything else other than themselves. That means they're hegemonic. That means they're ruling. Mm. Like I think just because he doesn't necessarily use the the terms, I don't think it means he's a bad bad leftist for whatever that means. Or I I don't think it means his analysis is not leftist. Yeah, no, I get that. Mm. 
Um, yeah, I think like obviously another uh, criticism is that like his analysis is really simplistic. Um, again, I think it is simplistic. This is eight hours of very, um, very disconnected thoughts, fascinating old footage, all arranged um, to to kind of transmit certain memories and certain impressions. Hmm. Right, I think they make a really good like jumping off point, and they they always have. I mean, you look at um, no shade intended, but mm. think of the most enthusiastic like hashtag JC4PM account you've ever read. Yeah, and how many times do they put up Edward Bernays quotes? <laughs> Where do you think they learned about Edward Bernays? Yeah, yeah. I, I genuinely think that odds on, he, they probably learnt it from either Adam Curtis or some hand me down Adam Curtis. Mm. You know, and I'm not saying it's entirely due to him, obviously, but like having having even those brief flashes of mm. very simplistic analysis that come through that say like advertising was not omnipresent in human history. Yeah. Um, that the political order can be shaped as opposed to just existing naturally. Mm. Like the things that he comes across, even though they're like Wikipedia level, are a step beyond most BBC documentaries. Well, yeah, most you know? documentaries in general. Yeah. Like the um, big ones that get big releases. And, you know, there is a certain kind of centrist person mm-hmm. who will really put stock in their their learnedness and the fact that they watch BBC4, the yeah. fact that they watch these documentaries. Is it got a TV release or is it just on iPlayer? As far as I know, it's just on iPlayer. Yeah, his I, last couple I, have been just on iPlayer. I haven't checked the TV. Which I think is part um, of the reason why they're all so much longer now than they used to be. Yeah. But the, I mean, all of these documentaries, the, the single, there's two facts about BBC documentaries. One, they are literally all travel logs. <laughs> um, actually, three facts. Two, the presenter, ha- there has to be a presenter mm-hmm. and there has to be a costume change at some point. <laughs> and three, they are awful. They're so <laughs> terrible. They're so bad. Like the breadth and the kind of historical insight that you get, even from Adam Curtis saying, and then something happened, is far beyond. Yeah. What thing? And it makes all of these people who laud the BBC documentaries, who were actually were kind of the people who were having a go at Adam Curtis mm. uh, before the show came on, they're exactly the kind of people who end up fucking clueless when you when you actually approach them with something that happened in the last like four years. Yeah. I, I, when I was watching it, I remember. Um, uh, do you remember the year end awards? I, I can't remember whether we actually included it, but there was some British journalist looking at a picture of um, Hong Kong police invading a newspaper mm. under the new Chinese national security law. Yeah, um, and they said something like, "Oh, you wouldn't see something like this in the West." And it's like, do you not remember the MI6 and GCHQ going into the Guardian and smashing up their hard drives? It was filmed. Yeah, it was there. It yeah. actually happened. And like, that's one of the great things about Adam Curtis. Like he. Through these stories, he's giving us back some of the components of resurrecting these things that so easily fucking get lost. Yeah, there are a lot of these you people know? deliberately... Like, gathering, yeah, gathering all these disparate facts, and even though he, they, they might have one sentence attached to them, hmm. I found myself going so many times, oh yeah, I remember that, hmm. you know? Um and like often he kind of goes t- takes a sciency approach and psychological approach to like biological human memory hmm. but all the time they're operating as for him as kind of um 
ideological kind of analogies for the functioning of how we seem to lose our memories every like two years or so, mm. you know? Mm. Um, and like, yeah, the way that historical memory works in Britain right now, when people say like, ah, oh, things were not always this way, it always ends up coming down on the right wing side, mm. you know, that things were purer or more wholesome or less scary. Or, I mean, think of the, like the nuclear gammons mm. of 2017 fame. Yeah. Like the base assumptions about the world that are because we can't remember longer than two years. And that, what's more important, never get reminded. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was so, it, it fucking killed Corbynism. Absolutely killed it because mm. no one could remember. Like everyone was, like how many people at the end of Corbynism said, oh, actually, I think he got a comparatively easy ride from the press. Well, there were, well, there there were, were at some, least two there, or three. Yeah. Well, those people in the, like, those specific centrist danger dads were saying yeah. that kind of shit um yeah there's like i've noticed it especially recently was the aisha hazarika thing talking about the relaunch keir starmer thing about working with business saying oh this is much better than what corbyn's idea was which was just hating yes. business and it's like that didn't happen he spoke at the cbi he, he literally about, like, said, I'll be better for business because yeah. I'll actually make sure your um, workers stop dying and don't, yeah. stri- like, don't strike. <laughs> well, yeah. Implicitly, implicitly, the yeah. social democratic promise that Corbyn put forth, maybe mm. not himself, but the promise he put forth, the offer he made business was, your workers will be better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, not saying he, I'm not saying he is anything he wasn't, but, you know. Yeah, but like, like... You can't even seem to broach the fact that, like, there was a serious attempt to abolish the CIA in the 70s. That was a main stream liberal opinion that mm. the CIA should be abolished. Mm. You Whereas know? now you've like, screamed at by a yeah. gapes like figure or. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, you look at, like, I mean, these are, these are all like American examples, but like, yeah. ICE. Mm. ICE didn't exist until 2002. Mm-hmm. You could abolish it. And go back. In fact, I mean, it didn't even have its full powers until Obama was in power. Yeah, it didn't have the full powers to detain things. So I think it took it from the Immigration and Nationalization Service or something. Yeah, INS. That makes sense. Yeah, um, they took that responsibility over. Mm. So they didn't. They weren't locking up children in cages. This was not a necessary thing. Mm. Russia wasn't the big existential threat until like 2016. And then yeah. we're meant to pretend that like it's always been like this. Yeah, that's a oh, it's a the that's a thing that's really trying my patience at the moment. The talking about Navalny in the same way they used to talk about Putin. <laughs> yes. Um like it it like it's on record that they that the Blair and that lot wanted Putin. They're talking about it. They talk, they're talking about him in the same way they talk about everyone. They're talking about the way they talked about um, what was the Georgian fella, Saakashvili, the one who got poisoned. Uh, no, um, the Georgian leader who was in charge during Ukrainian, that in, wasn't he? He was in invasion. Yeah, I know no, the, the yeah, Georgian he, one. Who, the Georgian guy who is like he's like with where Georgia is um, to be so <laughs> pro-America is. I mean. If we're really getting into it, if we're talking about liberal heroes who haven't quite um, lived up to their promise, Unsung Sushi. Yeah. Yeah. Unsung Sushi, who literally started genociding people mm. when she got into power. Yeah. You're talking about every single one of these particular, like, 
heroes and it doesn't matter nobody remembers no because it's the next one is oh he's finally the one who's going to make us make ultimately make us safe from russia Mm. even fucking i'm telling you iraq iraq's being forgotten yeah like anytime you bring it up in an argument it's like oh that happened years ago oh it's not relevant anymore and it's yeah it's just they're trying to intentionally memory hold these things yeah um and yeah, like these these kind of things are, are, are way more noticeable this time because there's, like I said, there's been this really aggressive takedown of Curtis from the agrocentrist people, like the anti-Corbyn liberals, mm. those kind of people. Um, and their main point is, I haven't that, seen much of that because, oh, like, I've 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 had quite a blessed week of like I've barely been on Twitter, um, I've barely watched the news because it just I was like I was getting it was just making me too down. And mm. so, like, I think the only thing I've the only thing I went on Twitter for was to post how well I did in Guilty Gear. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of varied. They've not all been quite as aggressive as I'm making out, but it's gone from "Oh, Curtis is definitely a known quantity, so we can mock him." Yeah. To the kind of actually very aggressive and saying basically he's doing tropes. Have they have they, have they called him anti-Semitic? Uh, I don't believe there's been an actual anti-Semitism, but they said it's perfectly made because it's all conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It is because it basically it's because Curtis promotes his method of of producing TV shows is to put out kind of discrete, isolated islands of fact. Yeah, things that happened with images that happened. Yeah, and then allows you to make the linkages. But yeah. the problem that they have with them is that linking these discrete islands in any way are have they have no coherence and they are therefore conspiracy theories mm. and yeah like obviously these kind of people do have a sharpened sense for this kind of thing now mm. because they've spent the last five years of hunting for russia stuff for brexit mm. stuff for corbyn stuff for milne <laughs> uh seamus milne stuff um and it occurs to me that like for all the talk about curtis works being like cons- like conspiratorial or conspiracy theory this one particularly they're all very um they're all very tightly bound mm. like most of his bits, you have to do the work to see the connection, mm. which is not promoting a conspiracy theory. It's like, how is it a conspiracy theory if mo- like the most common Curtis Curtis cliche is, and then something happened which powerful person did not expect? What yeah. kind of fucking Illuminati conspiracy theory is it where the Illuminati don't actually have any control <laughs> and are constantly caught out? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. But of course, what they're actually doing, and I think what anti the really hardcore anti conspiracy people are coming to together to do at the moment is to attack the notion of power altogether. Yeah, like they they don't want you investigating the nature of power because it's just easier for you to pretend that no one has any power mm. at all because mm. then you would have to do something. Um, like the one big, I think we've said it before, the one big void in liberalism discourse right now is is power. They think that power exists. But when you try to identify it, it's a trope. Mm. There's no one you can blame. There's no one you can know because you would have to blame someone. Mm. If society is wrong and there are people with power, Mm. they either are doing it or they know about it and not doing anything. So, you know, um, and you can see it across the kind of broad swathe of like centrist discourse. I wouldn't even call it a discourse. Things that they've done and said, (laughs) you know, from would you nationalize sausages to... Calling, yeah, from from 
nationalizing sausage, like asking, would you nationalize sausages? Mm. Even down to like calling rich people bad is anti-Semitic. Yeah. This is an attempt to remove the idea that anyone owner or worker or rich or poor have power beyond their immediate cultural surroundings. Yeah. Their social positions, they're in their social positions for no particular reason no. and they're fixed the way they are. You can't change them. Mm. And that any criticism of them can only be done on the terms set by that social position. Yeah. This is why it's okay for liberals to make fun of like hunting, mm. bullingdon, poshness and posh tropes, but you're not allowed apparently according to these rules to make fun of working class landlords and pizza yeah. shop owners. Yeah. Because you can only criticise them on their own terms yeah. for things that you have decided that they, they have. Um, and, you know, like, Curtis does go beyond that. He he focuses on psychology, but he focuses on how it, like, incorporates this notion of money and this notion of, of class power. That's mm. the most important thing that I've always found really useful in in, in Curtis' works. Um, one of the, like, really cool things about this series particularly is... He starts to try and bring in um, different different countries, um, what's going on in different societies, particularly China um, in this one. Oh, there's um, some great footage of the revolutionary uh, operas. Incre- there's incredible footage. I haven't, like, I've never seen that much footage of um, Madame Mao. Mm. We know almost nothing about that. That doesn't get covered, mm. and it's going to be the world's largest economy. Mm. You know, and you would have thought that there should have been some movement towards it. But I think there is also this tendency within mainstream broadcasting and mainstream media discourse, let's say, Mm. rather than liberal discourse, that what happens in different societies is always separate. Mm. China went on its development path. The US went on its development path. The UK went on its 20th century journey. Mm. I hesitate to call it development. Went on its journey. And all of these journeys are separate. Mm. Like they're, it's kind of wig. It's it's kind of a wiggish um, like view of their yeah. histories. But what Adam Curtis is doing in this show is aligning all of these different societies as being subjected to actually subject to similar pressures at the same time. Mm. You know, he he um, juxtaposes like Joan Ching's uh, paranoia, Madame Mao's paranoia, with Nixon's. Yeah. You know, he talks about how Putin transferred the wealth of oligarchs to the public sector in order to he could that he could dominate it when yeah. he came to power. And in the same way, bank uh, politicians in the West transferred housing crash debt from the housing crash from the private sector to the public sector. Hmm. So, you know, there's these these various kind of alignments that are, are really interesting. Hmm. And it's it's. It, it, I've never. I don't really see a lot of other documentaries doing it. That like the idea that somehow modern phenomena are ours, i.e. the West's. Yeah. And that other countries are strange and on their own, and they never interact with it at all. And yeah. it's very weird, especially it given is, it is globalization. That, like, um, the WWE have made more of an effort to um, understand China than mainstream liberals in Britain. Yeah. You know, it's, it's only there for like a year. He apparently speaks Mandarin. You know, as I imagine he speaks it. Try and ish. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe I'm being mean about the ability of John Cena to pick up languages. <laughs> I just can't see him picking it up that well in a year. <laughs> it's just, it's just really interesting how he manages to kind of. He has two main constants, which is money and memory, and all of these things are affected in the way he portrays it are affected in very similar ways at very similar times. 
Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're the prizes of having a successful society, but they're also the disease. Mm. You have to deal with your memory. You have to deal with money. But once you've got it, you then have to work with it. You know what I mean? Um, and yeah, he treats, he treats these things as global phenomena up and down through this series. It's, it's really good. Mm. Um, the actual construction of this show is, was really, really interesting to me because I, I was trying to work out um, what, what he was doing. It has a, watching it all in probably over two nights, maybe three nights, as I did, I started to get a feel for how it was different from mm. his previous series. Um, there was a really good article in Tribune by Julian Duane. Um, it's a really good article. I, I recommend reading it. Um, saying that Curtis's method is concerned with making apparently disparate events and places and isolated images, music, and text, making them rhyme. Yeah. So it's not that you are looking for direct connections, but you're looking for synchronicities that may only be poetic or, at the very least, aesthetic. But they are they rhyme nonetheless. They chime mm. together. Yeah. Yeah, the way that the segments of this show all flow together... Mm. Um, is is very different. Sometimes there's no there's no music shift into a different topic. Um, the images don't necessarily change that quickly. You don't get a narrative bit. He doesn't say. Meanwhile, in New York, something else was happening. There's a lot of bleeding and melding between all of the things. Mm. The segments are also quite short, yeah. much shorter than they've previously been. Sometimes yeah. there is literally one line of text with some accompanying images. Mm. You know, Usually there's not, there's, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of dancing. Um, at first I was trying to work out why he'd kind of intentionally erased, seemed to have intentionally erased like segues. Yeah. Like what effect he was trying to produce, you know? Hmm. Um, and for a while I thought it might be, um, like a cut up technique. Like it doesn't seem as random as like the cut up, you know, the burrows thing yeah, yeah. where you cut things up and you find yeah. patterns between things. Um, all the episodes, like all the, it's all relevant. They were all about some common themes. The episode, the episodes are all very discreet, but like even the stories of say Michael X, you start in episode one and it goes through until about episode two and then it ends. Yeah. Jiang Ching, the, the storytelling is stretched. I'd say over at least five episodes, the five episodes of the six. And at first it seems very uneven you know, but it, but it still has the kind of the common themes that you would usually expect. Hmm. Um, there is some kind of progression. He generally starts with the earlier history and then slowly moves it up. But then later on, especially in this, the final episode, he very, very often flashes back 50 years to help provide context for a thing. Huh? It's, it becomes really, really wrenching. Like he will, he will do like a, um, a thing about banks and then go back 50 years, literally say 50 years later, then do like a minute on that and then go back to another topic and then do 50 years, you know, that kind of thing yeah. where he, where he thinks it's necessary. It's not got a, it's not, none of these things have any common pattern to them, common source. Mm-hmm. And there's this, like it produces this really like wrenching, like chaotic effect. You know, there's this constantly ramping tension because you genuinely don't know how long he's going to stick about, stick around on this thing. Yeah. Um, and I mean, like, it actually reminded me of, and ring the Deleuze and Guattari alarm here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the uh, the plateau mm. from A Thousand Plateaus, which was, it was an idea that they 
borrowed from like um uh, this anthropologist's research on Balinese culture okay um and they describe it as a continuous self-vibrating region of intensities <laughs> um essentially in a very simple way um a plateau can be read starting anywhere and can be related to any other plateau like they um they describe the chapters in their book as plateaus yeah you know um to put it simply, it's basically like their idea of a plateau is it's a load of things brought together to form an assembly. Yeah. They assemble this thing. They form a whole mm-hmm. thing. These different things interact with each other without ever utilizing each other to come to a final conclusion. I think yeah. it was, I genuinely think it was based on this guy's um, research into this Balinese society that thought the highest form of sexuality was edging, just always edging. <laughs> It's essentially, I've, I've chosen to interpret it something like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, these, these, these stories that Adam Curtis is telling, they kind of, they rise up, they sink below, they're stretched out. Some are told very quickly. Some take many episodes. So you don't have any ability to look forward and predict the crest of this, of this narrative. You don't yeah. know where it's going. You know, like I, I felt with quite a lot of the time as well, he was um, he was teasing the traditional Curtis music cues. Mm. Like he uses that opening crest of um, A Warm Place by Nine Inch Nails a lot. Mm. Um, and he has just little bits of burial, <laughs> like here and there, never quite starting them. I'd be interested, actually, no, no, no one's probably going to do this, but I'd be interested if you went through and you could see the similar music cues that he uses, whether there is some kind of pattern that can be divined out of that, that gets into a kind of TV as a puzzle box kind of thing. But I I just thought it was really interesting to see Mm. whether it indicates some like thematic structure that he was putting in underneath. Um, But yeah, for a while, this editing actually wasn't really hitting me the way I thought Curtis had intended it. You know, he, you were flat, you started flashing through different stories quicker and quicker. You know, you went from, Appalachia to Kerry Thornley, the Discordian guy, to Jiang Qing, to Valium, expecting you to pick up the thread. One of my favourite bits was at the end of one of the episodes, there's just a, um, after he's been talking about OxyContin and the fact that Valium was made by the same company as OxyContin, Mm. um, there's just a sudden bang with a music, a a kind of explosive musical cue of an advert for OxyContin, Mm. just at the end of the episode, then it ends. Yeah. Like, it came out of absolutely nowhere. Um, And I was wondering what it was like. And, like, after a while, I realised, like, the state of mind I was in, absorbing all the... Like, being focused on one thing, having to move to another thing and only briefly able to absorb it before I move on to the next thing. Having a lot of demands put on your understanding of what you need to think. All of it's valuable, but you just don't quite know where to look. And I was like, this feels like Twitter. Yeah. Like yeah. this feels this series feels like the experience of reading the internet. Yeah, you know, like it felt it felt like how I try and do this podcast when we do like contemporary political stuff. Mm. Like I try and maintain this like focus mm. of you know remaining informed. Yeah, while I'm reading Twitter to see what the fuck's gone on, and I I can't. It's incredibly difficult, you know. Um, and it's yeah, it's it's like you're reading the introduction of a a number like a hundred popular histories all at once yeah yeah you know and and you know usually these books would like if you were reading the introduction to a book if you continued with the book they continue with facts and figures but he he can't really do that on tv and can't do it in the way that he wants to so 
he broadens it out into kind of broad, very broad statements on society and trends. But the effect of having these very small fact explosions hitting you all the time mm. is, yeah, it's 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 the the kind of how internally disjointed everything is, and how nothing transitions smoothly, mm. or and until it does, um, suddenly you realise that yeah, he is trying to he he seems to be trying to produce this effect on you do you know what i mean yeah um and you know like there's there's a few other little um little shouts to i what i think are shouts to social media because the interesting thing obviously because he's dealing with the bbc archive the largest proportion of it was pre-internet yeah um the internet is not mentioned it's not really focused upon the internet cannot be filmed so even mm. when you do get it back there's not a lot of kind of scrolling screens of text without the kind of person scrolling on them the images do not contain the internet so i think it's really interesting that he was kind of calling out various things on the internet like there was the one bit um i'm not sure if you've got to it yet but um <clears throat> the democracy democracy wall Duh. which is when basically Chinese authorities, um, after the Cultural Revolution, tried a little experiment in uh, freedom of speech and freedom of the press, mm-hmm. they allowed pamphlets to be handed out in this one particular place in Beijing. Yeah, and uh, eventually it got closed down because, of course, it did. Um, and there's this old interview with um, I think it was a Chinese teacher or a Chinese lecturer, um, or or maybe even a press officer, and they asked why it was necessary to close down the Democracy Wall, and his response was. Without putting his name on the wall, any person can charge or blame any person without any ground, without any legal ob- obligation. Do you think in England you have this kind of freedom? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, no, it's uh, it's literally Twitter. It's literally social media. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the other thing that was interesting, like the Soviet cosmonaut asking to put his um, burnt remains on display mm. after he was forced to go up in a broken spacecraft to celebrate yeah. 50 years of the revolution. Um, and I mean, if that's, frankly, if that's not a better metaphor for the modern internet and the resulting societal model that it creates, I don't know what is. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't think everything in this show was um, like absolutely superb. Um, I have a few kind of criticisms of, of what he does. Uh one of them is he doesn't always give the full picture of the people whose like intellectual journey he's covering. Did he do that with um, Mahler? He one hundred percent does that with Mahler, unless I've missed something. So Horst Mahler was a uh, in the Red Army faction with um, uh, Bader and uh, Ulrike Meinhof, um, and they cover his experiences when he goes to um, a Palestinian training camp. Hmm. And you know, there's they've been reported before the the conflicts between like radicals and uh, and like national liberation fighters. Of you know, they wanted like women to be able to sunbathe and mixed quarters and stuff like that. Yeah, that's the barter thing. And essentially, shooting and fucking are the same thing. <laughs> shooting and fucking are the same thing, which is the title of the third episode. Second I think. Episode, I think. Second yeah. episode. Um. And yeah, you have kind of documentary footage of interviews with Horst Mahler who said that how shocked he was um, when Palestinian militants would come up to him and point to Hitler and say he was the best man, Mm. you know, and talk about how it made him very nervous because of the the guilt that Germans felt about 
the Holocaust. And it's like, don't you feel like you should have maybe added the fact that he became a very prominent neo-Nazi mm-hmm. in Germany? And in mm-hmm. fact, I believe is he might have been just deported back to Germany from Hungary, where he was hiding from Holocaust denial yeah. charges. Yeah. You know? Um, he does it with uh, Limonov as well. Again, you're kind of caught here because obviously I've already made excuses for how shallow the analysis is here and how the form of the piece kind of overrides any concerns for me about the content. But there was a lot of um, stuff with Limonov about how he doesn't go into more depth about what it actually meant to be a national Bolshevik. You know, he does explicitly call it out. He says Limonov was now a fascist nationalist. Yeah because he could uh, tell a better story with it. And, you know, there's a few isolated bits there. And, and you know, there's there's also a lot of kind of allusions to um, non-European societies having violence buried in their past and anger and resentment. Hmm. Um, and I would have, I think it would have benefited from maybe a little context about where that came from, because violence does not, Violence just does not simply genetically transcend generations. If you're talking about... There's a very, very interesting bit with uh, Edward Limonoff and um, Radovan Karadzic. Yeah. Uh, During the Yugoslav Wars, uh, they're above a town and they're talking about how this town has been in the possession of the Turks for so many years, but it's always been Serbian, really. Mm -hmm. They're they're having this conversation in English. Mm -hmm. It's really fucking fascinating. Maybe it would have benefited from some context in that situation. Yeah. There's also um, a bit I disagree at the end. I don't think you look, you you haven't got there, but he does bring in, Adam Curtis does bring in COVID at the end. Um, okay. And he talks about how it's the first crisis in modern times that came from outside the system. Hmm. Um, and while, yeah, I get what he means by saying that a biological like pandemic is not something that can be bred inside the system. I, I would probably argue with him that like COVID traveled along the lines of globalization. Yeah. It traveled through its airports, through its business class lounges. Mm. It traveled through the densely packed urban centers. And the shape of this pandemic has been determined by the contours of the response that each country was, was capable of. Yeah. It's almost fucking predictable that the U S with mm. appalling healthcare, terrible labor rights, um, would have a bad time of a pandemic. Equally with yeah. Britain, the NHS is twisted beyond all recognition, splintered into pieces, and certain places did worse than others. Mm. You know, the decade of austerity hollowed out the public services. There is no real unifying public structure in Britain other than maybe the news. Yeah. You know, it, it was it was kind of predictable um, that this would be... Uh, that... that, that that COVID would end up this way. You know, I don't think it, I don't think it, I don't think labeling it as well. This is the first thing that nobody can really be blamed for. And it's like, no. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, just a couple of my, my favorite bits that, uh, I, I really liked in the show. Um, there was a really interesting kind of comparison with, between the silent majority mm-hmm. and the Chinese, the Chinese cultural revolution. Yeah. I mean, like, because he goes from talking about the decline of trade unions to talking about a different kind of collective power, which is the silent majority. Mm-hmm. Um, I genuinely think that's one of the most important things to understand if you're looking at politics in 2021, the fact that that's the only collective force that you are allowed to harness and that everybody's yeah. trying to harness it. 
But what was just as interesting was like Nixon supporters shouting at the media, the tapes of Nixon going, the press is the enemy, the establishment is is the enemy. Yeah. And we forget that like, we, along with the Chinese Cultural Revolution, where Mao brings in students to kind of shout at and, and purge his political enemies, we forget that these two concepts were contemporary. Yeah. They were happening in different societies, but they were both happening kind of in the in the late 60s and early 70s. Mm. And the, the they kind of follow a very similar pattern. There's a similar process of of mobilization, especially now with 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 kind of Trump, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm 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 a big sucker for comparisons of like late capitalism and late communism, or more accurately, comparisons of the Soviet and the American Empire. Hmm. Um, and seeing the um, later on in the series, the images of the Night Wolves, the, uh, like a biker gang, holding. Um, a big show with like fireworks and pyrotechnics um, for kind of the Russian nationalism that's being promoted by Putin. Yeah. And it was just like, Oh my God, it's like bikers for Trump. Yeah. It's just as, it's just as gaudy. It's just as it attracts the same kind of Mm. um, particular kind of late capitalist persona, which is like that bearded operator ex outlaw guy. Who's actually quite rich, like quite well off. Yeah. Um, I'm an outlaw, but I do own like a, a farming supply dealership. I sell yeah, combine harvesters, like, a lot of combine harvesters, my, but I'm an outlaw. Yeah, exactly. It's it really incredible. And like um, the other bit was uh, the Limonov's um, fascination with Russian criminals mm. as the people who have the last true freedom in an increasingly kind of bankrupt, like ideologically bankrupted society. Yeah. And like his fascination with Russian criminals as having the last layer of freedom. And then you kind of juxtapose that with the last 20 years of like TV, the rise of bad men doing bad things, you mm. know, like your Tony Sopranos, Walter White, yeah. the Joker, yeah. you know, the fact that these are seen as necessary promoters of freedom, despite the fact that they're like evil, immoral men. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating how it, how it, how it kind of um, turned around. Yeah. I also liked that it's, it's later on, but there's um, a bit with, uh, he, I wouldn't say he overreaches. It is a really fascinating idea, though. The fifth episode, I think, was probably my favourite, mainly because it was just constantly dealing with there is something dark at the heart of England after the Empire. Yeah, which is I'm I'm always going to be interested in that. But tracing kind of um, bucolic ideas of a bucolic rural England as mm. promoted by the aristocracy. He then kind of um, transfers this into the way it operated in the empire, which is like the KKK, the clans comes from the idea of Scottish clans, mm-hmm. which is historically inaccurate. Yeah. Um, when the English were um, in the Middle East, the reason why they favoured um, they favoured the kind of sheikhs of the desert tribes rather than Western elites in cities because they were kind of mirroring, they were mapping the old idea of like a, a peasant England of a natural order onto these people. So the people in the countryside were naturally more pure. Yeah. <clears throat> less corrupted by industrialization. Hmm. And yeah, like the, um, the fact that the U S then did exactly the same thing in, uh, Iraq in 2006 and started favoring desert tribes because they were pure and because they had not been, um, them incorrupted, which of course that then turns into, ISIS. Yeah. The people that the Americans supported, once the money went, they they 
economically supported ISIS. Another way that he does material analysis, by the way. He doesn't just say that ISIS appeared because everyone was really pissed off and everybody had a good idea to do this army. Yeah. It's like, no, they had a shitload of money and a shitload of people, yeah. of ex-soldiers. That's what happened. And yeah, just uh, I, I, there was just a really interesting through line of that idea of like Merry England hmm. getting transferred to so many different societies. Like even now, like Chinese, rich Chinese people want a manor built in the English style. Mm. You know, they want big houses and mansions built like an English person would have them. And it's like, that's, there's so few people have that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's yeah. not, it's not English at all, even if it ever was, you know. There was a couple of bits that, um, that I've seen so far that I really enjoyed. Um, I say enjoyed, that just really upset me. Um, the, showing the footage of the funeral for some of the founder members of the Red Army faction with the, uh, the the funeral that was at the same time as that um, former Nazi industrialist that they'd killed, well, that yeah. some members had killed um, at the same time and shown, like, that footage was, like, really great of, you know, you've got the people turning up for the Red Army faction's funeral and they're, like, surrounded by armed police and then you've got all these people in suits and it's, like, very much, like, it's very grim. Like, like he ham, like in the second episode, he proper hammers home the, um, the notion of like people giving up. You know, like the, the election that went bad for Labour in the nineties, and that whole generation of people that then disappeared out of politics. The ninety, the ninety two election. Yeah, yeah. that it had that kind of feel, of you mm. know, never dream, never hope, <laughs> everything's fucked. <laughs> well, maybe yeah. that's just how I'm seeing everything at the moment. That's, I mean, that's actually like, that's actually kind of what I took away from this. But like, I, I thought it was like surprisingly positive, you know? Like, there's a whole section later on where you have um, Abu Zubaydah, who's uh, currently in Guantanamo Bay, um, tracing his career from very early on. Um, at one point, he gets a brain injury uh, where he gets some shrapnel pierced into his, into his brain and he loses his memories. And ever since he was young, he'd kept a diary detailing the things that disgusted him, friends that had betrayed him, um, things that he he watched, you know. Mm. Um, and they describe it as like, they describe his life as he was trying to piece his memory together and kind of work out what he was going to do in the future based on this piecing together the, of these fragments. Mm. They say like, uh, he Adam Curtis does do a voiceover saying it was though time had stopped, trapped in a perpetual now with no hope of moving forward into the future. Now, obviously, that that line has really strong echoes of the other favourite of the Your Boyfriend 2010s left wing guy, yeah, um, which is Mark Fisher, yeah. Um, but weirdly enough, hearing it there, mm. and I thought, oh yeah, that sounds like that sounds like a Mark Fisher thing. Um, it feels like that it's kind of been passed by. Like, that's a standby of this particular phase of leftism was, you know Adam Curtis and you know Mark Fisher. Mm. And yet that whole thing of the abolishment of alternative futures. I don't know that, like, for, for all of the kind that stuff about, you know, futures that we were promised that never happened, mm. I don't think we can necessarily deny right now, saying in 2021, that history and futures are happening again. They're good, folks. Like, if anything, these futures and these, these, like, histories, they're happening faster than we can cope with, even with the kind of societal paralysis you get around around Rona, mm. you know? I'm probably misinterpreting some aspect of, like, Mark Fisher's stuff, of course, like, I'm yeah. really honest, but, but I think, like, 
you can gain an important point from that that like if we can recognize times where things have changed say mark fisher being out of date or, or incorrect now as opposed mm. to then if we can have that historicity in our minds we can actually get better equipped to deal with like more surprising modern phenomena mm. you know as you say like i think when he talks of julia grant in the show the transgender um lady who uh had some she had to go i think she goes up to the nh she goes to the nhs and has to see a load of psychiatrists and then protest to the psychiatrist that they have control over how she is able to control her own body um and i think eventually she there, there's some problem with the the operation um later on and she can't have sex anymore so her partner leaves her and it's it's like a bit of a downer from someone who was very um very heroic in the way that they were trying to, in the Curtisian way, use their individuality to uh, change society. Yeah. He also covers um, Afina Shakur and her mm. son, um, Tupac. Yeah. The rise and fall of their kind of dreams and projects. I think, like, if you take these in, in as a whole, it ends up seeming very, like, pessimistic. It can seem as if everything's destined to be, like, heroic, but futile. Yeah. Um, but I think that actually the mode that he uses for his storytelling this time, remember that ability you, in the show itself, you don't have the ability to project forward because everything is running at different, every story is running at different speeds. Every story is disjointed and disconnected and it's up to you to make those links. I think that has to be, what I took from it is that has to be on, on purpose because if you think that those careers were failures, you're projecting forward, right? Mm. It's something that I think, like the construction of this series, really actively res resists. Hmm. You know, um, and it occurred to me by the end that, like that classic Curtisian, like, but then something happened that they didn't expect. Hmm. Like, that's not necessarily a pessimistic or a negative outcome. Hmm. You know, like Curtis seems to be struggling as we all are with wanting and realizing that a change is necessary. What's what exists now is is not good enough. Yeah. And quite often he gets criticised, and I, I've kind of felt this about him in the past, that he gets cut off by past examples. He gets oppressed by history. You know, he says, you know, we use the same methods and therefore we're, this is just going to go as badly yeah. as it was did before. All our efforts meant nothing. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, if you take that as one whole narrative, everybody seems to be a failure because we do not live in the society that we want. We do not live in the society that these people strive for. But... It seems, I mean, it also seems even more kind of um, apropos, apropos now, seeing as Corbynism was like a comprehensive electoral approach. It seemed like it was trying to take the whole narrative and shifting it all at once. Mm. But, and I think we think we failed because in Curtis's, you know, simplistic terms, we didn't find the right story. But what I think Curtis is going for with this series especially is that it's as important to examine how we relate to these grand stories rather than necessarily abolishing them entirely. There's a, a, a section towards the end yeah. um, of the show where he, um, he uses the example of um, the Family of Man exhibition in 1955, um, curated by, I think it was curated by Herbert Bayer. Seemingly um, random photos of people arranged in no particular order, um, and Curtis explains that, they saw he saw this as new propaganda 
Um, to quote him, instead of being overwhelmed by stories created by those in power, the individual would make their own stories out of the photographs. The individual eye of the individual self surrounded by a mass of images, selecting and arranging the fragments and images to create their own story, freeing themselves from tyranny, confident individuals in control of their own world. And I mean, I think this is kind of what Curtis is trying to do. He literally tells us. Hmm. But he then later seemingly undercuts this positive bit by saying, well, that was the way that the Festival of Man was in the 50s, but also this is bears a lot of similarities with the early operating model for Google. The individual self at mm. the centre, looking out into the, into the thing, assembling data to tell themselves stories, to, to explain the world, right? Mm. And I mean, he goes into kind of um, a lot of stuff about how computer society examine society just as it exists um it's a lot of stuff from hypernormalization actually it's it's pruned and it's a much better told here but hmm. computer computer society a computer run society an algorithmic society yeah. examine society as it exists because it only takes things from what exists it never hmm. asks why it exists or who hmm. benefit from benefits from it there's he literally says there's no meaning it just observes and describes yeah and he talks about kind of big tech and algorithmic like learning networks. Um, and he gets someone in who says, yeah, it's not programmed. There's too many rules to write. If you wanted algorithmic stuff to predict the world, there's too many rules to write it. Personally, you have to learn from data, i.e. you can't rewrite the rules. You can only perpetuate what exists. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he, it, it, he cross-references this with like a British postman saying, there's no end goal. You just get on with it, describing how he felt in school and in work. There's no... There's no particular thing. And the actual ending scene of um, this this show is the Google dog algorithm. Yeah. Which is the, they asked a neural network to produce a picture of a dog and it produces infinite dogs, which comes across as like this magical, like magic eye where every single component, if you focus on it, like for long enough, it becomes a dog. It is moving, but it generates eyes. Overall, it's a complete mess. But as you focus in on little bits, it does start to uh, appear to you. Mm. Um, there's no meaning to it. There's only a pattern, mm. you know, unless you reach out and give it meaning. Um, and he really forces this this theme of meanings and patterns because that's what he's laying down. It's patterns. Then the meaning comes from you. Part of the function of putting up these decontextualized images in a way that's much harsher than he previously has is to force us not to accept what he's saying, accept the links that he's making. It's to force us to reach out with our own understanding and our own mental resources to piece them all back together. He's making a pattern, but the mode for understanding it like, comes from you. Mm. You know, that's that's what's really valuable in this work. It's precisely what it gets flack for. You know, that if you're going to get the most out of it, it forces you to assemble the pieces. And, and frankly, those are the kind of skills that we're going to need mm. in the future because it's going to get... It's going to seem more chaotic without an all-encompassing solution like, for instance, electoral socialism. It's going to become a lot more difficult to work out where to focus, even, not even to where to put our energies, where to focus on. Yeah. You know, and I think that, like, I, I, I really enjoyed the stuff about Illuminatus, about the Discordians. Yeah. About yeah. Kerry Thornley. Um in the uh, thing, because like I used to love Discordian stuff, and like you'll mm. say it as well, Illuminatus trilogy by Robert Anton Wilson, which took very heavily from the Discordian movement set up mm. by Kerry Thornley, uh, was a really formative influence in in me and in us. Yeah, it does. Um, not, yeah. not yeah, not that I would necessarily politically align with it. No, but like it's 
the Illuminati trilogy, with its kind of twisting narratives, its constant undermining of belief, have been an incredibly useful outlook to have. Like, mm. and that's that's the way you deal with this stuff. You have to use it as a a jumping off point. And I think it's I think it's it's just been excellent for kind of bringing up stuff that you remember and helping to actually straighten that stuff out in your head, despite the fact that it's not presented to you straight, that you have to do the work. And it's training your brain in a way to help you make sense out of these disparate things, which is after all what Marxism is like that being able to see certain patterns and why things happen for a particular reason. You have to connect these, these different phenomena. And that's, I just think that's a, it's, it's really excellent at doing that. Uh, that's us for this week. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us at WDTATW underscore podcast. Follow me at BM Bergamo. Follow Hugh at Tanner Smashing. And we will see you soon. Bye. Bye. about the fighting game when Mr.